If you have your copy of the Word of God, if you would turn with me to the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew, we will continue our place where we left off last time, and we will pick up reading there in verse 27, and we're going to go all the way down through the end of the chapter. I know it's uh, a little different there in your liturgy. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down. Come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lob. Lama Sakbakthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him 
who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now an evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will arise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask you to pour your spirit out upon the preaching of your word to give us clarity with a little more brilliance of what the glory light was that was shining into this dark world in the face and the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who was the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, who was God and Creator of heaven and earth and the Restorer of heaven and earth. We pray that you would give us the Spirit to take the application and get involved in this tremendous work that He has called us to do here in this world, that we would never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the good news of salvation to all who believe. And grant, O Lord, we pray that You would energize Your people this day in this message for the work You've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A round diamond has 58 facets cut into each of its edges to what we now call the diamond cut. The diamond cut is the round diamond, and it is considered the most brilliant of all of the diamonds. Those cuts are done in, with, with a precision and a skill with the angle such that when light enters the stone... It reflects internally and refracts, and then it comes back out to give the stone a brilliance and a glory and a beauty that we have come to know as the valuable diamond that it is. And this is much of the way of the work of Christ. And this is much of what was going on here on the culmination of this day when He dies upon the cross. And there is so much going on in this chapter that when he dies because of this going on, 
that so many of the facets come into play, reflecting the glory light of, of the God's glory into the stone which was cut and then was shining brilliantly out into the darkness of this world and has continued to shine since that day. It was a dark hour, but it was also a brilliant one. And there are so many facets of God's redemptive work in Christ that are now at play here in this very text and in the days to follow. And all of history up to this point, which has been leading up to this point, now converges into a single point of time and space right there in Christ upon the cross. Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect image of God. Jesus will now embody everything of the old world that was cursed and suffering, and He will die. And He will die with it. And Jesus, all of the old world was put to death, and there He was reconciling all things unto Himself, things in heaven and things upon the earth. Invisible and visible. A new cosmos was beginning. And there when he rises three days later, all things will be new. Nothing here upon this earth has been the same since. The gospel has affected more than we often realize and more than we often understand. There is a new time and a new space, a new heaven and a new earth that has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An old system that was fallen has come to its conclusion. And this day when Jesus dies is the day that the old world, that power of that old system, an old world ended and a new world began. I'm going to call you this morning to believe that. What we have here in the beginning and even through the preceding context is a clash of two kingdoms. And as we view this scene with Pilate on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand, you have two figureheads of two kingdoms that had been at an antithesis since the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent began in Genesis 3 at the fall of man. Pilate representing in his figurehead the kingdom of this world with Satan clearly behind it all, having already done the work in Judas, now Judas conspiring with the Romans and the Jews and all of the kingdoms represented facing off against Jesus who is the figurehead of the kingdom of God, now coronated as the new king. Coming together in this great cosmic clash that has been decreed from the beginning, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent come to this face-off at this moment in time and history where this cosmic battle will be settled. 
for the cosmos and humanity. John's gospel gives us a little more insight into the interaction and the conversation between these two figureheads. Pilate asks about his kingdom. Are you a king then? And Jesus answers about the truth. I came to bear witness of the truth. Pilate doesn't know the truth, and neither does he care about the truth. What is truth, Pilate would say? He only knows power and the power to kill. That's the kingdom of the world. Jesus is the truth, and he is the power to life. Jesus holds the keys of how life works, its purpose, its design, for he is the creator And the two worlds come here in a standoff, a face-off, the power to kill on the one hand and truth on the other. And there's great irony. When you have two worldviews completely at a completely different opposite ends and they come in a face-off, oh, there's irony. Because of the drastic difference between Pilate and what he represents and Jesus and what he represents. This cosmic battle is fought in the most unusual way that brings irony to bear at every turn. Wielding their worldly power, the soldiers then, while abusing the body of Jesus, mock and make fun and despise Jesus of his claims, but then they bow their knee and claim, Hail, King of the Jews. As they lead Jesus out to Golgotha and they crucify him there on the Roman cross, they divide his garments among them, and by so doing, they fulfill the word of the prophecy from Psalm 22, which was David's psalm that Jesus owned as the son of David. And fulfills the 18th verse where they divide his garments by casting lots. Everyone in this world is an agent of God's providence. You're either a willing agent or an unwilling agent, but nonetheless, you are an agent of God's providence. He will use your evil to accomplish His good. And He will use your good and righteousness for His namesake to accomplish His purpose. And that is God. His sovereign purposes overrule everything and fulfills all of His very word. The irony thickens in verse 37 as the sign above His head reads, The King of the Jews. Now, it's interesting that the Jews would never call him the king of the Jews, but they would only reflect that he has said that he was the king of Israel. It's interesting that when we have the king of the Jews, that was only spoken of by Gentiles. But it was put there in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so the whole world will know he is the king of the Jews. The Jews tried to get Pilate to change that. Oh, don't say that. Say he said that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. While Satan 
the accuser, that's what the word means, Satan, the accuser, is the father of lies. He is the great accuser. Jesus there hung on the cross with the accusation over his head. That was the actual truth. The irony. Now watch out for this. As two kingdoms come together and you are in the kingdom of God and you are battling the kingdom of the world because we have been engaged in this victorious battle now and we have the truth. But be careful. Be careful how you engage. Don't get sucked into the world's way because the world will often accuse us. That's what Satan does. He accuses us. But he often accuses us with truth. But then as he takes and uses that truth and he accuses us with something that is true, he turns that around and makes it seem like something is wrong with it. If you've ever been accused of something that is true, don't apologize for it. And if you admit in some way that perhaps what you're being accused of, which is true, and you are standing for truth, if you somehow admit that there's something wrong with that by catering to the enemy, the accuser, that is an old trick of the enemy, and you have been deceived and sucked into his snare. Never admit that the truth is wrong. Never go there. Because it is the truth that will triumph over the kingdoms of this world. It is the truth that will set us free. It is the truth that testifies of Jesus. And never apologize for the truth. It is here that the two worlds clash in the irony that is the strongest. The serpent would merely bruise the heel of Jesus and here is Jesus now suffering upon a Roman cross which was the best weapon that the old serpent could do. He uses the kingdom of this world and the powers of the kingdom. And the greatest power they have is the power to kill. That's the only power He knows. Power and authority. Power to kill. Power to intimidate power of tyranny. But Jesus had warned Peter not many hours before when Peter in the flesh rose up and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus says, he who wields the sword will die by the sword. Peter, that is not the way. I told you to pray that you enter not into temptation and now you're succumbing to the world's ways. Peter, put your sword up. This is not the way to win the battle. Jesus, on the other hand, would crush the head of the serpent, a mortal blow that would destroy all of the power physically and spiritually, and he would do it with truth and righteousness and love. That's what he's called us to. The nature of the battle itself reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. It is not a kingdom of this world. 
It is not a kingdom like anything in this world. It is the kingdom of God from heaven and with a King Jesus. And while it is in this world, it is not like anything of it. And the kingdom objectives of God are different than the kingdom objectives of the world and all who lead in it. His methods are different. The nature of His kingdom are different. His government is different. Unless we recognize and understand these differences, we're not going to live life correctly. We will get sucked up into the vortex of the world system, doing things the world's way, playing ball on their field, and doing battle with their swords. Our enemy only knows the power to kill, but that is not our weaponry. The nature of our warfare is more transcendent than that. Remember Jesus saying not not too long ago, and he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. We are called to believe what God has said in His Word. We are called to obey it with all of our heart. We are called to believe that Jesus is the King, ruling over the nations, that He today is on His throne, and His church is prevailing over this world in righteousness, in truth, and love. I'm calling you to believe that. We are kingdom people, and His people are characterized by truth and holiness and love and those beatitudes and that 1 Corinthians 13 love and and the fruit of the Spirit. We are called to turn away from this world and the way that the world thinks and the way that the world goes about its business and the way that the world rules and the way the world governs. And we're to trust a new way of doing things, a new way of life here upon the earth. The world's news. CNN. NBC, CBS, ABC. Fox News. The Guardian. Whoever it is. They do not have the answers. They do not have the truth, and they do not care. And that is competing with what your soul believes in this. This is the truth. No matter which source you watch, read, or listen to, it always comes up with the same question as Pilate. What is truth? What is truth? The world only knows the power to destroy and will wield that power. But be careful, my friends, not to get sucked up into the vortex of the way that they think because it will affect your lives and your faith here in the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed.
There's such a contrast. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. This is a contrast, a completely diabolical way of thinking in the way that the world thinks with the way that Jesus thinks. It is an antithesis that from the beginning was the seed of the serpent and God Himself coming into this great cosmic battle and the ways are different, the nature is different, and the results will be drastically different. Notice these accusations of the truth. This is the irony where the irony builds as the Jews observe the sea and they join the mockery with the Gentiles and they strengthen the irony in five things. They acknowledge that they clearly understood Jesus to say, number one in verse 40, they clearly understood Jesus to say that he would destroy the temple and raise it back up in three days. Number two, from verse 42, They clearly understood Jesus to mean and to say and to declare that he was the king of Israel. Number three, the Jews clearly understood that Jesus trusted in God. Number four, the Jews clearly understood that Jesus said that he was the son of God. And number five, after his death, they clearly understood in some ways better than his own disciples did that in three days he said he would rise again. And actually, that statement that he made, they put some stock into something because it calls them to action. All five of these claims were absolutely true. And now that the final hour of this age comes to an end, the focus is on Jesus and His kingship and His temple. Thus were the accusations. His kingship and His temple. How appropriate. How ironic. How brilliant was God's glory light shining into this dark world, focusing on the cut stone of Jesus. I found it interesting when we were reading for Revelation, something I hadn't thought about, how here is this stone, and that stone was Jesus. And now cut with all of the facets would reflect that glory light internally out into the dark world and shine brilliantly the grace and the glory and the mercy and the truth of God in this world. There on the cross is where Psalm 85, 10 and 11 says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring up from the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And this in Jesus is the connecting point between heaven and earth. Bringing it all back into a balanced harmony like it was in the beginning. At this point, all of the fallenness of creation, all of the corruptness and all of the sins were being hurled upon Jesus. The hate and all the shame of the world, the despising of the good things of God, the accumulative forces of evil, the untruthful accusations. While they were true, they were turned into a negative 
untruth. The injustice, the anti-creation, the tyranny, the spite, the sneering, the lies, they were all being gathered up and accumulatively now focused in in this deadly and dark spotlight upon the Word that was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And He was high and lifted up, bearing it all in truth to put an end of all of that old corruption. Two key themes play out here in King Jesus' kingship and Jesus' temple. This is a day that the cosmos changed. The followers of Jesus were committed to now live lives and they were committed to implement this change. That, that is what we are called to do this day. Implement this change in the cosmos. What we see going on here, the season was Passover. This was happening at the time of Passover. We're reminded in all of the Gospels this is so. The Passover is where the story starts. It is here on this Good Friday that the narrative expresses is where the new exodus would happen. Where God's people who were in bondage in Egypt, who were under the dark forces of Pharaoh, who then was the representative leader of the world and its kingdom and its dark figurehead under the sway of Satan. Then God would defeat that foe with a great display of power culminating in an act that would lead to the exodus of His people out from under the bondage. And He would do that with the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh and his army would be destroyed in the waters of judgment, echoing the narrative of the flood as God's people passed safely through. And then the Passover was this perpetual memory meal to testify of God's great deliverance. And when Jesus wanted to explain to His disciples what His death was going to mean, He didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. Coupled with that exodus, however, and this is sometimes where we leave it, we think about what Jesus did upon the cross is just save us from our sins. And that is an important part, but it is a partial part. That's only half of the story of Exodus. The other half is the entire building of the tabernacle. And the building of the tabernacle was a special place where God would come and meet with His people. It identified with the original creation given in Genesis 1 and 2. It was a microcosm, if you will, of the created cosmos where heaven and earth come together. This is where God meets with His people and walks with Adam in the cool of the day and the beauty of the garden. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have an account of seven days of creation. Each of those seven days are representative also, even though they are literal days, they are representative of the seven stages of building a temple. And we see later constructs of the tabernacle and the temple patterned after these seven days. 
And that's what God was doing and showing in this construct of this creation. The temple being the intersection where heaven and earth come together in harmony and balance is the cosmos. The tabernacle is a microcosmos testifying of this reality. And after the temple is constructed, the, the last step on the seventh day is where the builder of the cosmos, the builder of the temple, would come down and inhabit the temple. And he would dwell there in the midst of the creation. It was on that sixth day, prior to the finality, where he then establishes his image. And he takes his image and he makes the image and he creates man and woman in his likeness. And in the image of God, he created them. And he places this image in his temple to reflect his glory throughout all of the world. This image would reflect the presence of God in the world that he had created. The image would be through which the sovereign creator would become present to all of his creation and it would be through which all of His working out and creation would be established. And so it would be from the beginning. God chooses to work through humans, through man created in His image. And so the second person of the Godhead would become true humanity. The Word of God who was with God and was God would become flesh and He would tabernacle among us. The seed of the woman would be the true and the perfect image of God through which God would then use in this world. So as John's Gospel echoes back this narrative as he opens up this account in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and it tabernacled among us, echoing back to Genesis. So it was on this last Friday when Jesus is hanging upon the cross, when this human image, this perfect image of God would be placed in His temple to reflect His glory throughout all of the creation, that the world his ruling representative of Pontius Pilate declares, Behold the man. Behold the man. The image. Unwitting agents of his providence, the irony grows thick. And so, Jesus the man, the perfect image through which we see the Father is lifted up. The work is done. And the next day, Jesus would take his Sabbath rest in the grave, ending that old order, the old time, the old temple space. And on the eighth day, he would arise from the dead, making all things new, and he himself would become that new temple, thus fulfilling the very accusation that was faulted against him. He was upstaging the temple because the temple was always pointing to Him. And then we see, beginning in verse 51 and following the effects, the effects upon the cross 
Oh, does the cross save you from your sins that you can be with God for all of eternity? Absolutely it does, but it does so much more than that. It is reestablishing an entire cosmos. It is putting you in its rightful place as the image bearer of God so that you can go and reflect the glory of God throughout all of creation so that as the waters do cover the sea, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the face of the earth through you. Three effects are identified in verse 51 and following. The first effect had to do with that temple. The veil in the temple, as Jesus says, it's finished and His Spirit breathes the last. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. No longer needed. No longer was that the place in which God's Spirit would dwell in His glory upon the earth. Because Jesus, united with His church, would become the temple And His temple, the flesh, Hebrews says, is the veil. And through His flesh do we then come into the very sacred holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwells when this intersection between heaven and earth come together in the flesh of Christ. This physicality, this earthiness, now united together as one with the church and the two become one flesh. Paul says, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. It's not just a spiritual union, it is that and all the more it is a physical union because the physical world in which we live is that which God has been favorable to. It is that which God has redeemed. It is that which the cross has then taken it anew and made a new heavens and a new earth which has begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for the new heavens and new earth to begin. It has already begun. And we are engaged in the work and the ministry of the gospel so that it then moves toward its final culmination in glory to which we have a beautiful picture that we read in Revelation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. All old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new way of thinking, a new way of life, a new way of living. You are a new humanity. The old temple and its system was finished. Second thing, the earth quaked. Rocks were split open. This is indicating that the old creation has been affected, making the way for a new. This is what Noah's uh, narrative was about. It was a part of this great covenant so that as the, the sin that God allowed to take over and show the depravity in what sin does, He did not leave it to be destroyed completely. And He intervenes with Noah in the ark. And so we have now, as Noah comes through the floodwaters and he lands upon dry land, and, and now we have a, a new creation, if you will. It was simply in token of what Christ would do, but he gives the same kind of illustration or commands to Noah as he gave to Adam. And we have this reconstituted earth now making way for Jesus. In token form, it is showing as an object lesson of what Jesus would do in reality. And so the earth quaked and the rocks were split open and the things of this earth have now taken on something new. 
The third thing that was here, which is a bit mysterious, and I confess I don't have the understanding, but I take it at its face value. It says, graves were opened. Bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and, and they came out of the graves after the resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And here we see the triumph over sin and all of its consequences, ultimately death itself. Pilate couldn't offer that. He could only give death. Jesus offers life. All of the kingdoms of this world usurp authority and power. Jesus then serves with truth, love, and righteousness and holiness and provides life and life fully. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and here we have a token. We see this token that the new creation has begun. Something new has happened and transformed. In the cross was a new Genesis, but in the cross was a new Exodus. And so if Abraham's people are going to inherit the world, which God promised that he would do, then Babel must be overthrown. Pharaoh must be defeated if Abraham's family is to be rescued. And Babylon and its gods must be demolished if a new exodus from exile would ever be accomplished. And this is what Jesus was doing. All this the prophets saw from afar. The kingdom of God would be established through the defeat of the dark power and the redemptive return of Yahweh into Zion. And all this was going to be accomplished through the suffering servant, Messiah, Jesus a crucified Messiah, a resurrected Messiah. And there on that Friday, as darkness covered the face of the earth, the power of the fallenness of the old Adam and the old creation was coming to an end. A new power was emerging. And in three days it would be displayed in the resurrection and and then as Jesus ascends back on high and He sends the Spirit upon His people, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the very power that raised up Jesus from the dead has been given to you. And Jesus bids us with all authority, now go, for all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. You will be successful. That's what He was saying. You will be successful. I'm calling you to believe that today. I'm calling you to believe that this rainbow that has been perverted will not prevail. The rainbow is God's symbol and sign and His truth will prevail and we're going to take it back because God says, I will make you successful. When He says, go and do my mission, He did not call us to mock us. He did not call us to fail. He called us to succeed and that's what we need to believe. It is not going to succeed Succeed if we do it the world's way. It is not of that nature. It transcends that nature. The way of the kingdom, the way of the gospel is the way of the new cosmos. It is characterized in the Beatitudes for those who are poor in spirit, for those who mourn over the sin, for those who are meek and and are hunger and thirst after righteousness, for those who are peacemakers, for those who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for all of this characteristic that Christ has shown us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. And yes, even suffers long, but is gentle and kind and 
merciful and gracious and loving and faithful. We are meeting right now, currently, in the temple, the new temple that Christ has established. Where Christ's resurrected body, seated in the heavenlies, where His church is united together with Him physically and spiritually. This is the temple. This is the God space. This is Zion where we come, where Yahweh returns redemptively into Zion, and there He speaks. This is where He answers. This is our place with Him. This is the place, this mysterious space and time on this Lord's day that, that heaven and come, earth come together in balance and harmony. And here, all of these things, he sums up. He sums it up in a meal. In a meal. And in this meal, with all of its formation in our souls, with all of its digestion in our spirit, we go in the strength of the Spirit and we defeat the dark forces of the world because Jesus sends the light into the world. And that's what we are to do. So much is going on on this Good Friday as we, test, as we look into the Scripture. So much history has culminated. So many prophecies fulfilled. So many things are being put to death. And the dark forces of evil and Satan's kingdom was focused on Jesus that day, but the light of God's glory was also shining down. And Jesus, that, that cut stone, that, that stone that the builders rejected, that one who has all of these beautiful facets that was shaped in him by the will of God, this perfect image of God in the man Jesus, much like that diamond, reflected and refracted the glory light so that the brilliance of God's glory shines forth in the gospel, in the power of the cross. And that is the way God intended it. In three days, it'll all make sense. And as we live in the light of Christ's death and His resurrection, we are engaged in the same manner and the same work as our Lord. To be actively involved in this tremendous revolution, if you will, as one author puts it. We are overthrowing the dark powers of this world through the truth of the gospel and the love of God. Do not be ensnared or entrapped in thinking that you can defeat it on its own terms, but we have a more powerful term that through even death our testimony of the truth can live. Do not be afraid of those who can kill you. That's just little stuff. Oh, the power that lives on way well beyond the grave. We are empowered to God's victory. So do not let the blaring sirens of the world or the false narratives of kingdoms and governments or the accusations of truth confuse us. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. 
Go and conquer the world, my friends. This is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Do not fear that all of this rubbish in the world will govern this world and take the world down its tubes. This Lord loves this world. He created this world. He is the redeemer of this world. And the cosmos has not been the same since he died and was resurrected. Do not be distracted with the world's news. They don't care about the truth. We have the tool that will change this world. Go and be bold with it, my friends. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for the truth that sets us free. And it will set free those who are in bondage still to sin as we once were, children of disobedience, under the wrath of God. And yet, in Your mercy, You have saved us with Your grace. You have saved us to show us new light and a new life and purpose and design so that we can go out in this world as lights and be successful in victory. May we not fear what man can do. May we not be discouraged with all of the the perversity around us. May we not yield to the ways of the world, but may we reclaim ground for the gospel, reclaim your rainbow for the cause of Christ, reclaim baptism and the sacraments of bread and wine, knowing that we serve a living Christ who desires to meet with us today in Zion. Hear our prayers and answer them according to your tender mercies according to the will of God that you have declared to us in Jesus Christ. It is in his name, it is for his sake that we pray. Amen.